G'day humans, welcome to Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas. Here's a dangerous idea. Is Vladimir Putin on the brink of finally achieving what he's been trying to do for two years, which is essentially wait us out and create a situation in which we get tired enough and cautious enough that by default he cares more about Ukraine than we do and he's able to pivot, stay the course and defeat Ukraine. There are concerns that we are reaching a tipping point and that the Ukraine war is descending badly. What does that mean, not for Ukraine, but for the stability of Europe, for the citizens of Eastern and Central Europe, and most importantly for the liberal world order that we all have an interest in seeing sustained? Today, a fascinating conversation from someone who's been to Ukraine a number of times and can tell us both what it's like on the ground and what the implications are for the globe at this pivotal moment, and why this moment is so pivotal. Marcus Walker is a fantastic journalist and an old friend of mine. He uh, is ostensibly the South Europe bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal, uh, which means that he's stationed in Rome and he covers all the stories uh, coming out of Italy, Spain and Portugal, Portugal. But because there aren't always earth-shattering stories coming out of that part of the world, and he has previously had more senior positions at the at the journal, for example, he was the chief uh, European economics correspondent during the financial the global financial crisis, and lived in Athens when the Greeks voted no and were going to crash out of the euro zone. Um, so, because he's highly qualified to report on the world's biggest stories, and that isn't always happening in Rome, they've been sending him to Ukraine a lot, and he's been reporting almost all of his most recent articles in the Wall Street Journal for a global audience, have been about Ukraine. And he feels that we're at a moment of reckoning in Ukraine. Uh, It's a tipping point for Putin. We're at a position where the United States resolve may be waning. We may be sort of losing collective patience with the war and with our support for Ukraine. And Marcus is a brilliant guy who tries to cast his mind forward and say, okay, well, what does that mean? How do we balance the risks and rewards of doubling down on Ukraine versus pulling back from Ukraine? What does that mean for NATO? What does it mean for our collective security as Western liberal democracies? What does it mean for the people in Eastern Europe and Central Europe? I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation as much as I did. Marcus and I were together in Portugal, so the audio is uh, perhaps not perfect but you can hear the hopefully the the streetscape and imagine the boisterousness uh and uh the conviviality of sitting in an apartment in lisbon chatting with the one and only marcus Walker. when was the last time you went to ukraine june june of 2023 yes and how many times? So I've, I've had three periods in Ukraine. Now, we have some correspondents of the journal who were there all the time or nearly all the time. And we have others who cover the conflict outside the country and write more about the international dimensions, the diplomacy. I'm one of the few who tries to do both. My main job is trying to understand the geopolitics of it. But for me, it's very important to also be on the ground, at least some time, some of the time to get a sense of. And on the ground, does on the ground mean that you're at the Kiev Marriott in a presidential suite? Uh, soaking in a tub. Are you kidding? Asking passers-by what they think of the war. <laughs> shouting out the window. Or is there... 
our budget, our budget doesn't allow that. Uh, in my case, I've been in the big cities away from the front line, and I've been at the front line too, especially in June. I was very, very close to the front line, uh, only three or four kilometers from the Russians on a couple of days with Russian artillery flying over our heads and, and landing behind us. So the Russian artillery is too good. They should have made it a little bit shorter, and then Marcus would be toast. Indeed, yeah. Um, so I've been both in a helmet and a flat jacket and in uh, what we call the red zone, uh, with a security advisor, uh, whom, uh, they tend to be ex-British military guys who are trying to tell you how to not get killed. Uh, but I've also been in inside the country and uh, meeting as many people as I could in the, in the government, uh, ordinary Ukrainians, um, business people, people trying to keep the energy system um, up and running despite missile attacks, as well as talking to um, soldiers at many, many different uh, ranks um, at or near the front line. Including soldiers who'd been Russian soldiers who'd been captured who were prisoners of war. Yes, um, thanks to one of my Ukrainian colleagues, early on in in this summer's Ukrainian counteroffensive, I met um, a group of Russian prisoners of war who had just been captured and they were still um, bloodied and bruised and had just been bandaged uh, by the Ukrainians who were being taken away from the front line to be processed and put in a prisoner of war. Um, camp. So I met them at a very makeshift facility and got a chance to talk to those who consent to talk. And um, they were, you know, poor wretches. Some of them had no choice. Others did. Um, for some, you could only feel sorry. Uh, for others, less so. But definitely hearing their stories was uh, was eye-opening too. And that was a story that readers found to. What do they think they're doing? Do they think that they're cannon fodder who has been who've been set yes for a, to a failed yes. thing? Or do they think they're doing something good? Some of them have absorbed the official narrative of the war that they are fighting against uh, Ukraine. That's a hotbed of Nazism, um, and they think that you know that they're fighting a good war. But they were all painfully aware that they were being treated as cannon fodder and as utterly disposable by their commanders. Um, you know, in the last four months, there's been this Ukrainian counteroffensive to try and push back the Russian occupying army. It hasn't been going as well as the Ukrainians hoped um, because the Russians had a long time to prepare for it. But those Russian infantry units who are manning those minefields and trenches on the front line are also, um, you know, going through hellish months un under fire. And uh, many of them had not been rotated away from the front line for, for months and months. And it, it takes a toll on you. And some, one of the, some of the people who you spoke to were conscripts. Some were there voluntarily, you said. But is that because they were convicts who'd been given an opportunity to get out of jail free by going to fight or what? Broadly, there are um, three categories. There are conscripts. There are um, professionals, what they call contractnicks. So they've signed up to be in the army for a certain number of years. And those who sign up in recent, in the past year and a half, know full well that they are signing up to fight the war in Ukraine, and it, it's voluntary in their case. And then there are these. Why are they doing that? Well, they may well see it as a, a good career option. They they may well earn very well. You know, if they survive, they come back with more money than they would be making in the provincial town in the far reaches of Russia. You'd want it to be a lot more money. I'd want a lot of bags of potatoes. Yeah, I'd want a lot of borscht. <laughs> you know, some die and those who make it back um, have really benefited mm. but also there is uh, you know, a strong commitment to the war and by many who 
and believe in what they're being told. And then the third category is prisoners. Um, in the past year, the Russian army has relied very heavily on um, getting convicts to sign up for um, six months or more of fighting on the front line. And if they survive, they get a pardon. And uh, being in the Russian prison system is uh, such a hellish existence that six months of risking your life and then a prospect of freedom uh, looks like uh, a good way out. And are these people who robbed a grocery store to feed their starving families or are these hardened violent criminals? It includes a lot of hardened violent criminals, includes murderers, uh, rapists, armed robbers, drug dealers. I spoke to a drug dealer from St. Petersburg. Um, he had previously been a professional soldier and then after the army he had become a drug dealer and he'd ended up in prison and, and to him um, going back to fight again for six months uh, seemed like the better bet than staying in jail but he found that uh, you know, he was horribly mistreated by his own commanders even after he was wounded they didn't let him recover he was told to carry on fighting and um, he eventually was wounded again and then just surrendered to the Ukrainians right so probably not the best gamble that he made it you know it kind of depends how it works out for him now because um, Ukraine and Russia make uh, exchanges of prisoners of war and in Russia it's actually illegal now it has become a crime to surrender if you have any way of fighting on oh shit and um, there have been cases of Russians who were given back and were, and were then killed especially uh, Wagner members, for example, members of that um, you know, private military corporation. So it can be very, very dangerous for them to be given back. And some of them ask the Ukrainians to keep them and to not. Mm, right. But if he's not, if he's not convicted of having surrendered and he does get sent back, then is Putin good for his word that he's just going to release these murderers and rapists and drug dealers back into society after they've done six months at the front? There are already people who have been released back into society. Yes after serving their time in Ukraine. Why does, why would, wouldn't Putin not want chaos on the streets of Russia by opening the doors of the prisons? You would think so, especially for a guy whose uh, sales pitch to the Russian population is to bring back order you know, after the chaos of the 1990s that preceded the Putin era. But um, it appears that in, in the current situation, he doesn't mind about the high reoffending rate of violent criminals whom he has released onto the streets after a stint in the in the, the trenches um it may well be that this is the lesser evil from his point of view because he has a shortage of um he has had until now a shortage of troops to uh, man those front lines and you mentioned the counteroffensive not going maybe as well as the ukrainians and the west had hoped what's the status quo what's the stalemate can you explain to us the russian position in the south and what the ukrainians would need to to do what? Yeah, so um, about a year ago, so in the autumn of 2022, the Russians found themselves on the back foot and the Ukrainians were, were pushing and taking back some of the um, territories that the Russians captured early on in the invasion, early 2022. So Putin ordered a general mobilization um, and, and mobilized 300,000 new troops and packed the front line with um, often poorly trained conscripts as well as throwing in all these convicts and at that point, Ukraine didn't have the uh, trained manpower or the weaponry to continue pushing forward and taking back occupied land. And so we had a hiatus over the last winter until Ukraine received enough uh, weaponry from the West and had trained enough new brigades to launch this summer's offensive, which began in June 
The problem was that in the meantime, Russia had had many months to prepare defensive positions, so to try to hold on to uh, the remainder of what it occupies, which is essentially um, the south, southeast, and east of Ukraine, as well as the Crimean Peninsula. Um, the Russians have laid down very dense minefields. They've dug systems of trenches, and they've stockpiled artillery, and you know they've been preparing a defensive campaign for many months. And it is very hard for the Ukrainians to break through, especially since they don't have much of an air force. The Russians control the skies. You know, they have attack helicopters. They have far more planes. And in modern warfare, if you don't have air power, it's very, very difficult. And it's probably worth separating in people's minds that a few components here. There are the Eastern Russian-speaking, sort of Russian-identifying, ethnically Russian areas that are occupied by Russia. If I can put it that way, he said, Marcus has a hesitant, tentative look on his face about to quibble with my description. But then there's Crimea, which Russia already took almost 10 years ago. And then there's the south of, and then Crimea is this peninsula dangling off the bottom of Ukraine, uh, connected to the mainland by a bridge. And then there's that southern area of Ukraine, which is uh, quite a prosperous part of Ukraine and quite fertile and quite important to Ukraine's economy, right? Because it produces lots of agricultural stuff is that have i broadly got that right and so what are the priorities in each of those three yeah I, I would describe the situation differently what you've described is how many people around the world have come to understand ukraine as divided between you know two different groups who speak different languages and have a different allegiance but um really one has to distinguish between russian speakers whom you find all over ukraine because in in the czarist times and in soviet times russian became the dominant language in cities or of educated peoples and you know the Russian Empire and then the Soviets treated the Ukrainian language as a, a kind of vernacular spoken by country bumpkins. You know, so you will find people who identify absolutely as Ukrainians, but all of their lives until very recently they spoke much better Russian than Ukrainian. So the language is not really a guide to people's Russian identity or because the Soviets made them. Yeah, um, and the Tsars before them. And then you have people who are ethnic Russians, which means that their families came from Russia, like once upon a time. They came from a city in Russia and moved to Ukraine. Often in the 19th century, when the Ukrainian cities in the east were industrializing, there were coal mines and big steel plants. But even that is not really a guide to people's political allegiance. It's not really about ethnicity. You will find many people who say, you know, my family came from Nizhny Novgorod or somewhere in, in Russia, but identify as, as Ukrainian. Um, so there is no neat, um, match between language, ethnicity or sense, and political identity. Um, being Ukrainian or being Russian is, you know, conversely, you find a lot of people of Ukrainian descent in Russia who identify as, as, as Russians, um, and wholeheartedly support the Russian war against Ukraine. Um, so it's much less neat than in say Western Europe, where we tend to think of ethnicity and language and nationhood and political nationhood as all going together. Um, being, you know, I think Russia and Ukraine are more of an idea. You subscribe to that idea of this being your country. Now, the political situation in Ukraine was certainly that there were divisions between, say, the east and the south, which even if people felt Ukrainian, they wanted to have a good relationship with Russia. They thought that you know, the economic and political relationship with Russia is very important to Ukraine. And um, Western Ukraine, which wanted to have better relations with Western Europe and the West and the European Union. But uh, that, of course, doesn't mean that people necessarily wanted to be Russia, you know, that their region of Ukraine should become a, a region of the Russian Federation. Now, 
Um, this conflict really, it's, yeah, it's debatable when it started, but it escalated around 2013-14 when um, the pro-Russian president Yanukovych fell amid mass demonstrations and Putin reacted by um, sending troops in to seize Crimea. And then he fomented and sponsored um, a proxy war in Donbass, so in, in two re regions of eastern Ukraine. Now, it is certainly true that a significant minority of the population in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine had sympathies for the, the you know, for joining Russia or for the separatist movements that, that Russia fermented. But it's very hard to say how many people, you know, how big a proportion that was because it is hard to, you know, people don't speak freely under military occupation or in the kind of police state that Russia set up in, in Donbass. So the, that, that, However, you, you could still exit Donbass to the rest of Ukraine. Yes, correct. A lot of people did, and so there would have been a lot of. If you really didn't like Russia and you were living in eastern Ukraine, then at some point in the past ten odd years, you've probably moved. There are a lot of refugees. Um, if you go, you hang out in Kiev or Dnipro or other cities, you will find a lot of people who, in the years after twenty fourteen, fled from the regions where they lived to get away from the Russians. And I've met, I've talked to so many Ukrainians who are, for example, they, they their mother's Russian. You know, that part of the family came from Russia. They always spoke Russian and are only now trying to learn Ukrainian to a decent standard. And they will tell you, until 2013-14, I had a kind of mixed identity. I wasn't quite sure. I was a bit of both. And now they have become ardent Ukrainian patriots. Right. So that's the East and maybe Crimea. Yeah. Then Southern Ukraine, which is currently held by the Russians, is, correct me if I'm wrong, the real playing card at the moment, the joker that, it, that, that both sides are fighting over. Because without being cynical... I think everybody, if you gave them a truth serum, would concede that if this ends up in some kind of a settlement, Russia probably ends up with Donbass, eastern Ukraine, Russia probably ends up with Crimea. But what's genuinely in dispute right now and at a critical moment is whether or not Ukraine gets to keep the fertile lands of the south by yeah. pushing Russia out of those. What does it need to do that and does it have those things? So, so firstly... Almost all Ukrainians now will say we need to get Russia out of our country, period. And Completely. 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 Yes. That's the rhetoric. All of it. But I yeah. said truth serum. Yes. But, but even so, I think that the, um, you know, the situation is also is so emotional for almost all Ukrainians now because of the, you know, the, the number of dead people. Everyone knows you know, people who are, who've been killed or maimed. And um, the whole country is deeply opposed to any territorial concessions. Um, and there is a high level of determination to take back all of Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders. There is also a belief that doing so is the only way that this war will actually end, i.e. Uh, a war with Russia will continue whatever phases it goes through until the day that uh, Russia leaves Ukraine in its international, in internationally recognized borders. Um, of course, that is going to be very, very hard to achieve short of a you know, much more Western military aid than um, the West has been willing to give so far. And, and just expand on that, because I think that there's a perception in the West that we have really passed this test, that Putin banked on the West folding like a like deck chairs and not yeah. being able to come together with a coherent policy of sustaining aid to Ukraine. Yeah. And that we, we passed the test with flying colors, we stood up to Putin, and we have been pouring bucket loads of money and ammo into Ukraine. Yeah. Have we, what do you mean we haven't been doing enough? Um, yeah, that it, it's true that the West passed the first test, um, 
Putin didn't expect this level of resistance from Ukrainians, and he didn't expect this level of um, aid from the West. Um, however, this is uh, a long war, and there are there are many acts to this drama. And um, the West has tended to congratulate itself prematurely, for example. Fairly recently, uh, Joe Biden said, Putin is already lost. There's no way Putin can win. He said that at the last um, NATO summit in Vilnius. But this really is um, you know, premature, a, a premature declaration of victory because uh, Putin has decided to um, play a long game and to try and um, salvage what he can after his initial miscalculation. This was supposed to be a three-day war. It was supposed to decapitate the Ukrainian regime and take the country and, and impose a quisling and perhaps dismantle the Ukrainian state entirely. Instead, he's ended up in a, in a, a massive 18, nearly 20-month-long um, quagmire for Russia. But his bet now is that Russia has deeper political and social stamina than the West does. He thinks the West uh, is unable to maintain its level of engagement. And uh, the debate within the West is, has been whether to um, aid the Ukrainians more decisively than they have done so far so that Ukraine has a shot at winning this in the near And what would that look like? Well, um, at, at this point, it would mean um, giving the Ukrainians an air force. So F-16s the, are the planes that Ukraine has been, Ukraine and its more ardent supporters in the West have been saying, you know, we need to give them F-16s because many Western countries have, have lots of them. Do they know how to fly F-16? So it needs a training program. Um, the experience with every kind of weapon that the West has debated sending ha has gone through the same um, sort of stages of discussion where skeptics about sending it would say, yeah, but these are complicated Western systems. It would take ages to train people. And then they finally start training them and they find that Ukraine has plenty of technically very accomplished you know, pilots, engineers, programmers, and they learn everything far faster than expected. Right, and even if it does take a long time, uh, Putin has a long time. Yes, Putin will. You know, if Putin wants to take Kiev, yes. he will do it. If it takes him eight years, yeah. he will do it. So yeah. if yeah. it takes seven years to train fighter pilots, which it doesn't, yeah. then it would still be worth doing. But then the so then the question becomes: Oh, the other component that you've talked about and written about is not just jets, but long range. Missiles, yes, which are not giving the Ukrainians. What's the importance of long-range missiles? Yeah. So to overcome the Russians' occupation of, of the south of the east of Ukraine, the Ukrainians would have to be able to um, undermine their logistics, their their supply. Of, the Russians, the, the Russians, the Russian suppliers of ammunition and other things, and their ability to move reserves about behind the front line. So while the Ukrainians are attacking them frontally, they're also um, shooting long-range um, missiles to take down the, the support. To sort of isolate the front line. Yes. Um, then haven't they already basically achieved that in Crimea? Because the, the whole fleet, the whole Russian, they don't have any boats going to Crimea. How is Russia feeding its... How, what is the supply chain into Crimea? And so it's, like it's going overland. Um, it's going via the, the bridge that, that Russia built, linking um, you know, Kirk, over the Kerch Strait, so linking right. Russia with the Crimean Peninsula. And, and then it's going by. because Russian occupation is contiguous between the eastern provinces and the south. Yes, the eastern and the south, and, and they connect with with Crimea. Yeah, and, and there is also a land route from Russia through southern Ukraine to the front lines, and um, the Ukrainians would need more long range firepower to 
basically stop an adequate supply of ammunition and the Russians' ability to move reserves about. So can the Ukrainians, a quick geographical question, because I don't know this part of the world, can the Ukrainians currently shoot wherever in, can they blow anything up in Ukraine that they want to, or can they not, do they not have missiles that reach, sorry, Crimea, do they not have missiles that reach all the way into Crimea? Currently they do. Um, Some of the most potent weapons are long-range missiles that Britain and France are given them. But those two countries only have a limited supply of those missiles. And they're going to run out at the current usage levels. The Ukrainians are going to lose a capability that they have right now, which is why um, Zelensky has been asking the US and the Germans to give long-range missiles. Um, the German missile system is called Taurus, and the Germans have lots of those, those long-range cruise missiles. And the Americans have their um, ATACMS or ATAC-MS long-range missiles. And uh, both Biden and German Chancellor Schultz have been very reluctant to give those very potent weapons to Ukraine. Schultz basically said no the other day, did he? Yeah, he said he said not for the foreseeable. Right. But the problem is you need they need to be able to do it now so that they can get through and create the facts on the ground where Russia only has, at the very most, Crimea and Donbass, Donbass. not also... And to be clear, it, it is Western leaders who hoped for that kind of scenario, that, that we'll, we'll give the Ukrainians enough that they can break through in the south and separate the, um, the two parts of Ukraine that the Russians are already occupying, namely Crimea and, and Donbass. And that would more or less push the Russians back to their starting lines at the beginning of the full-scale war in February 2022. At that point, the Western hope was that the Ukrainians would be, will- the Ukrainians would be willing to settle you know, short, not having conquered back all of their territory, um, but that the punishment for Russia and the complete lack of any gains for Russia would be such that Ukrainians would be able to consider this an acceptable outcome. Unfortunately, the front lines have really not moved at all um, in the the whole of this year. And um, it is not a, a good strategic position for Ukraine to settle with Russia still occupying the south of the country, occupying most of Ukraine's um, coast, most of its ports, as, as well as very important lands for Ukrainian agriculture and industry. And so the longer it goes on that Russia sits on southern Ukraine, the more they can reinforce that position, the more mines they can place, the more permanent they can make that. And then for Ukraine to punch through, that becomes harder and harder with every passing day that we're not giving them long-range missiles and jets. Is that Yes. Is that the Ukrainian case? Tact- well, so time also gives um, Putin the opportunity to rebuild um, his army, which has been badly mauled. They've lost um, astonishing numbers of well-trained soldiers. Uh, many of Russia's best units have been mauled, and they are now uh, reliant on poorly trained conscripts to, to hold the line. And um, the Ukrainian fear is if there is a lull in, in the fighting, a ceasefire, or even a, a peace deal that proves to be temporary only, it would give... Russia the chance to rebuild its army and then go again. And let's remember that there was a peace deal when the Soviet Union collapsed. Ukraine was armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons and handed them over to Russia on the basis of a promise that Russia would respect Ukraine's territorial integrity forever. So here we, there were several agreements and treaties, and here we get into the, um, the fundamental difficulty facing Ukraine in um, reaching any kind of peace. Many, many people in the West and indeed throughout the world want the Ukrainians to negotiate and um, don't recognize the extent to which um, Putin has has serially broken treaties and 
deals he made um, and deals that Russia made before him. Putin himself personally signed a treaty in the early 2000s that uh, exactly delineated the land border between Russia and Ukraine. And he was asked in, uh, you know, which is now violated because he's now claiming large swathes of Ukraine as Russian regions. Yeah, rhetorically, he's saying the whole country is a fiction and doesn't exist and was just a, a mistake that the Soviets made and is legitimately part of Russia. Absolutely. So how much is um, you know, Putin's signature on, on a treaty worth? Right. So the problem now is everyone says, well, it's going to end up in a settlement. So let's just fast forward to the bit where we all get a settlement and get Zelensky and Putin in a room. You know, Trump, this is Trump's idea. You know, I'd, I'd call them, I'd tell them to settle. Yeah. The problem is no one believes that Putin wouldn't come back for another bite yeah. as soon as he could. If he has the opportunity. Um, so I think that the Western leaders have understood this problem um, because they've spent so long trying to persuade Putin to settle before the, the big invasion and and since. And they, they've realized that, that he just isn't a trustworthy partner and that he's, he has not given up his long-term aim of um, either controlling or dismantling the Ukrainian state whose existence the Russians have never really accepted. And so the, the strategy instead from the West, it would be to um, make Ukraine strong enough to resist any uh, attempt by Russia to repeat this um, this invasion. In other words, to reach a, some sort of ceasefire and then arm Ukraine so much that Russia would simply be unable to defeat it, even in a, a second attempt. And is another component to that strategy that you have to make Russia hurt so much from this war, even more than it has already, that it's not worth going back? Like, can you, in other words, if we know that the end game is a settlement, can we just press the fast forward button and get there? Or do we have to go slogging through the quagmire and the marshlands and the hellish swamps and the bullets and the limbs being blown off to a maximum level yeah. before you can get to Act 3? I mean, look, no one wants to go through that, um, it's, you know, through, through the pain of war. And above all, Ukrainians, you know, if you spend any time in Ukraine talking to them, the people who are most war-weary, who are most tired of this and uh, who understand best of all what hell high intensity war is are the ukrainians and and they fight not because they like it but because they see no alternative you know this is the only way they can see to survive is is to fight now this is what you're describing is really uh, a question that generates massive dis disagreement um within europe within the west um the ukrainians and central and eastern european countries as well as north european countries such as the finns and the norwegians and the, and the brits uh, tend to believe that Russia needs to suffer a clear defeat. Otherwise, there will be no end to Russian expansionism. They, they really need to see that this attempt to wage a war of conquest has um, led them to a disaster. Um, because otherwise, why? They may test a NATO country. They may, well, in the future, try to take Estonia. Yeah, so the, the, the ultimate fear, or the, um, the, the bigger interest, strategic interest that NATO countries saw in Ukraine as well as you know, moral sympathy for, for what's happened to Ukraine, is that if Russia were to conquer Ukraine, as well as controlling Belarus, which has become a kind of de facto Russian military district at this point, then Russia would have a strategically greatly strengthened position in Eastern Europe and would be in a position to um, menace NATO, um, NATO members such as the Baltic countries, where there are large Russian minorities. And the fear is that they would, that the Putin would try to whip up trouble there too, and would try to look for an opportunity to test whether NATO's 
promises of mutual defense are real. And it may not need to be tanks across the border. When you say whip up unrest, it may be we need to send in peacekeepers to help the Russian uh, ethnic uh, minorities in these countries to withstand the forces of fascism that are being imposed by the, the Baltic governments or whatever it might be. And it, it may not be quite clear enough for the US and other NATO powers to go, all right, this means World War Three. They might be like, oh. And he has more than 20 years of experience at waging hybrid war, using all means of putting pressure on countries from cyber attacks to um, you know, trying to mal- manipulate elections, um, financing pro-Russian parties, um, subversion, assassination, uh, and outright invasion. He's capable of using all of these tools and exploiting whatever opportunities arise. Putin would love to show that NATO is a paper tiger and that these US promises to defend every inch of allies' territory is a lie. So that's the argument for trying to make sure that Russia perceives it at itself as having been defeated and that it's clear and unequivocal. The argument on the other side, which is in order to do that, we need to give them these fighter jets, we need to give them long-range missiles, is, well, hang on a second, we're trying not to... If this guy is such a bad guy, let's try not to escalate with him. Let's try to provide him with some kind of off-ramp. Let's try not to turn this into World War Three. Do we really want NATO fighter planes, whether or not they're operated by a proxy like a Ukrainian fighter pilot, shooting down Russian targets inside Russia? And what if the Ukrainians took those long-range missiles and used them not only in Crimea, but fired them into Russia itself, then you'd have a NATO missile being shot at Russia and we would be the aggressors. Yeah, that fear is real. Um, The Ukrainians have have tried to address that by saying, look, we wouldn't use any Western weapons across the border in Russia. We would use only our own homemade Ukrainian weapons when we tried to take out Russian airfields in Russia, for example. And if they betrayed that, then we would have all kinds of tools to punish the Ukrainians, like not giving them any more weapons. Yes, the, the West could stop sending that weapon immediately. So that would be the last time the Ukrainians ever got to use And other weapons if we wanted to. And others. And and so far, the Ukrainians have stuck to those agreements. So, for example, those French and British cruise missiles have been used only against Russian targets inside Ukraine's borders. And Ukraine has been using homemade drones, for example, uh, in its attacks on Moscow or you know, Russian air bases. Now, to the escalation point, yes, I think, I think there are two big thoughts that have been holding back um, the US and Germany who are really the two key actors on, on the Western side. From supporting Ukraine more decisively and enabling an actual Ukrainian victory, the first is the number one um, priority of, of the US and of, say, Germany and France has been avoid war with Russia. No one wants a war with Russia because that could very quickly escalate into World War Three and a nuclear exchange. And however much sympathy people feel for Ukraine and however much of a, a strategic interest people see in Ukraine not being defeated, not falling to Putin, um, the West's stake in Ukraine is not so big that we want to risk World War III. So not, you know, the number one goal is no war with Russia. Um, the, the num- I think the second powerful thought is that Russia will still be around. However, however this war ends, Russia will still be one of the major powers in the world. And uh, the West needs to find some way of coexisting with it. And the fear is that, you know, all out war um, would make it almost impossible to really come to terms with, with Russia's existence. So I think that the, um, 
policymakers are looking beyond the war and wondering how um, you know how they can possibly find a way to a, a more stable coexistence with Russia. And China is very important in this context too. Uh, there are many policymakers who think that really trying to defeat Russia and, and inflict punishment on Russia and potentially even bringing about the fall of the Putin regime uh, risks driving Russia ever deeper into China's arms and deepening this, this Russo-Chinese axis of anti-Western revisionism. And there's still an idea, I mean, this is highly disputable whether it's, you know, has any realistic prospect that, uh, you know, by looking for a long-run modus of ending with Russia, we can keep Moscow and Beijing. On the question of escalation, let's just take the first bit first, uh, the not wanting to stumble into World War Three. Is that credible? What do we know about the way that Putin responds to provocations? Um, in, in a regime that depends so much on one man and a man whose decision-making has been erratic and unpredictable, above all, you know, the, the, the decision to invade Ukraine in February 2022 being Exhibit A, um, you know, it, it's an extremely difficult and dangerous game to try to read his mind. Um, nobody knows, ultimately. Nobody knows when and whether he might go nuclear. Um, so, you know, Western countries, given the limits of their direct stake and interest in, in Ukraine, have tended to be very risk-averse, especially the, the French, the Germans, and the US as well. I mean, absolutely. Biden and his um, National Security Council have tended to think, you know, we want to stay with it well within a margin of safety. So we are not entering the zone where we believe, um, you know, Putin might do something crazy and ex even crazier, even more extreme, like use nuclear weapons. Uh, there is a fear that if Putin used nuclear weapons in Ukraine against the Ukrainians, that the US would somehow have to respond militarily, perhaps with, probably with conventional military force, because you cannot allow nuclear use to happen and just become accepted. Right. That, that would open the floodgates to you know, a very, very dangerous... I've always been assuming that there's some kind of cyber or other thing that the Americans have put on the table and said, if you do this, then we're going to do that and it will be devastating or financial impediment. Yep. But maybe... We, we don't know what they would do because um, a part of it, uh, an important part of deterrence is, is also to keep that vague Right. The other, to maintain but also, I mean, it would be catastrophic for him because there goes the alliance with Beijing. China would turn turn on Putin if Putin used yeah. nukes. I mean, the whole world would unite in the most massive sanctions. I mean, all of the all of the outlying countries who are currently not yeah. in, engaging in sanctions against Russia would. So Russia would genuinely become an economic basket case. Right. It, it might well be the thing that um, tips. Russia in over in, into outright international isolation, which is something that Putin has been able to avoid. You know, so far, it really has been the West. Anyway, this, the, the, the I mean, world. this is an extremely unlikely scenario. I mean, the, you're being diplomatic about talking about the legitimacy of Western uh, countries' trepidation when it comes to provoking Putin. But I also know that you're a bit skeptical of, of our concerns and then feel that maybe in the past Putin has shown that he talks a big game, but when you actually push him, he doesn't go crazy. And that you know, it's it's a it's a calculus game, isn't it? What what would you what percentage likelihood would you need of World War Three to make it worth giving the Ukrainians the jets and the long range missiles 
that they need to just get the job done right now, yeah. at least just to get the Russians out of southern Ukraine? You know, would you tolerate a one half of one percent chance that Russia flips out and treats that as yeah. an act of aggression? A three yeah. is three percent, is five percent. <laughs> like you know, these are the yeah. calculuses. But I get the sense that you think that we're actually being too cautious. Well, so two thoughts. One is that all the actual evidence we have about um Putin's behavior are that he tends to test the West's reaction, and if he sees strength, then he steps back. And if he sees weakness, then he exploits it. And this is something that he has in common with another Russian leader he greatly admires, which is Stalin. In other words, they were both um, to terrible leaders. They have been to terrible leaders. And so the um, many people in the West say, if you look at how he's actually behaved so far in the last 20 years, um, Weakness is escalatory. It isn't a strong reaction against Putin that risks escalation. It's weakness because it encourages him to go further. And um, the sequence from 2014 to this invasion is prime evidence of exactly that. A weak Western reaction that did nothing much about uh, Russia seizing Crimea and Donbass encouraged him to think, oh, well, the West hasn't really done anything much. Some moderate economic sanctions, but maybe I can go further. And of course there is a risk. Of course, it's possible that um, decisive military aid to Ukraine uh, would, in fact, lead to the escalation that, that some are warning about. But the you know the other side argues that the problem is that the, the constant underreaction by the West has brought about ever more dangerous situations in, in Europe in, involving Russia. So that we, we we are incurring ever higher risks of um, perhaps accidental escalation into outright war with Russia. Right. And so at the same time as you have to balance the risk of uh, Putin, of escalating with Putin by arming the Ukrainians with more aggressive weapons than the ones that we're giving them now, you also have to balance that against the probability that not doing so yeah. and thereby allowing the stalemate to continue probably, possibly for years and allowing Putin to regroup and... And take Ukraine eventually. Possibly take Ukraine eventually. Then what is the percentage likelihood that that outcome leads to some sort of World War Three? Because then Putin is emboldened and he yeah. tries something in Estonia. the Baltic states yeah. or Poland or wherever it might be. And then we actually do face the, the real question of is NATO, yeah. it does NATO exist yeah. or does NATO not exist? Are we willing to go, are we willing, willing to declare to World War Three? Yeah, yeah, exactly, for Tallinn, for Estonia or Latvia. Like, yeah. will the American people countenance full-scale war with Russia in order to defend yeah. Latvia? Yeah, and, and Putin may well think, no, the West behavior shows that they are not willing to die for Tallinn and that I can get away with this. So it may be worth tolerating the small risk now of escalation by giving the Ukrainians everything they need in order to avoid the possibility of, of further escalation down the track. The argument is really you cannot avoid the risk. When you're dealing with an aggressive expansionist power that is willing to go to the brink because they think you aren't, there, there is no risk-free strategy here. We're in a very, very dangerous world. Indeed. Now, some people will be hearing this and saying, when you're dealing with an aggressive expansionist power, excuse me, the United States invaded Iraq in contravention of international law. They were the ones who went into Vietnam. They were the ones who went into Afghanistan. Um, they have insisted on their right to essentially control the Western Hemisphere. They didn't want nukes in Cuba. They've meddled in Honduras and Guatemala and Haiti yeah. and Nicaragua and uh, Granada. Of course, 
Russia thinks that Ukraine, which has only been a real country for 30 years, is it is part of it. And of course, Russia is going to care more about it than we will ever care about it. And of course, they their interests will outlast ours. So hypocrite, anyone? Um, you know, it, it is absolutely fair criticism that the US has um, fought wars of choice that were not necessary for um, self-defense and that had very poor justifications and, and rationales. Um, you know, the, the Vietnam in the Vietnam War um, has and can be profoundly criticized as a, a mistake from the, from the beginning. Um, and the Iraq War, possibly even more so. Uh, there was no real casus belli in, in Iraq. And the invasion of Iraq um, arguably did deep damage to the rules-based international order that the U.S. You know, professes to be the champion of, of defending. And uh, you know, Putin has exploited that damaged international order um, and has cited these U- U.S. actions as precedents. However, I think people have to recognize that there's, there's something pretty unique in, in post-World War II times, at least, about what Russia's doing here. This is an old-fashioned war of conquest, of trying to actually conquer another nation-state and make it your territory. And this is something that we haven't really seen in the world, at least since um, Stalin and Hitler. Now, the U.S. has done this in, in the past, for example, when it uh, expanded its territory at the expense of Mexico, for example. But you have to go back to the, the 19th century. And, of course, all you know, West European imperial powers are always trying to expand their territory at each other's expense. But I think in the post-World War II era, the, the whole idea of the, the U.N. and the international order since 1945 has been to say we will no longer do wars of conquest. We will have a system of sovereign nation states who all accept each other's borders. Now there may be many, there'd still be many reasons to fight. Um, civil wars, uh, wars of decolonization, um, you know, wars that come about through um, you know, misperception of your neighbor as, as aggressive, wars to try and um, support an ally, um, uh, wars with various motivations, but a war of conquest like this is, is quite a throwback to an earlier and very dangerous. Uh, right, the Americans were trying to turn Iraq into the 51st state. Absolutely. Yeah. Of the United States. Yeah. Uh, although I, I also think it, it's a bit of whataboutism, isn't it, to talk about Iraq? Because, yeah, if if I were talking to someone who had been a very pro-Iraq hawk, a neoconservative in the George W. Bush administration, who is now outraged at the impunity of Russia, then maybe there'd be a case to say that's a little bit hypocritical, even though the cases are different. You know, you can't say that Russia is breaching international law because you also didn't have UN authorization to go into Iraq. So that's not a, you know, that's a, that would be a hypocritical point to make. But if I'm talking to a liberal Democrat, someone who opposed the Iraq war, or I'm talking to someone who lives in Central Europe or Eastern Europe or Ukraine, and they're telling me with their hair on fire please help us, we hate this guy, yeah. please defend Ukraine, yeah. Russia is a menace. Oh, and also, by the way, we were never fans of the Iraq war in the first place. Yeah, as, as many, many people in Europe and in, even in the US were critics of the Iraq, of the Iraq invasion. Now, um, yes, there is an element of whataboutism to, um, to that argument, and of course, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, however, the fact is that you know, the US is standing as someone who was able to, to you know, call out wrongdoing by other states has been greatly damaged by the Iraq war and by the track record of US foreign policy. And, and this is just a fact. If you look at how other parts of the world perceive the US, you know, 
the, the so-called global south, which is no, it's not one thing, so it's a problematic phrase, but many, many countries from India to South Africa to, to Brazil roll their eyes when the US and Western countries stand up and say rules-based rules based international order because the track record for Western foreign policy has you know, not been one of consistently defending the principles that we now say Russia is violating. Right. But yes, so A, don't drive tanks across some your neighbor's border in order to turn their country into a bit of your country. And and B, um, listen to the people who are the victims of the actual war yeah. and what they want you to do. Yeah. And if, if the people who are closest to the threat yeah. are the ones who are asking you for help, it's a bit rich for your critics to say that you're the one who's imposing your will on other people. Yeah. What do you make then of the... I guess the more pragmatic or realist criticism, which I think is gaining currency fast in the West, especially in the United States, where I hear more isolation and more skepticism about our funding for Ukraine, which basically is a sort of a Mearsheimer, uh, maybe Jeffrey Sachs, uh, maybe Russell Brand, maybe Joe Rogan sort of point of view of like if China, you know, wanted to put defensive to have a purely defensive pact with Mexico and like wanted to arm Mexico just to say, oh, no, 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 this is just to defend you against the United States. The US wouldn't cop that. Yeah, so the analogy is made with the Monroe Doctrine, the longstanding US policy that they don't want other great powers meddling in uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, that's America's backyard. Um, and I guess I should also just add an asterisk to this, which is also... What did you think was going to happen over the past 30 years when you expanded NATO right up to Russia's border? Like, you know, the Soviet Union collapses. It's hugely humiliating for Putin and people who were who loved the ideals of the Soviet Union or pro-Soviet. And then instead of just being gracious about it and saying, okay, you guys have your sphere, we'll have ours, we, we got hungry, we gloated, we were triumphalist and we started saying, and now you can be in NATO and you can be in NATO and maybe Ukraine can be in NATO someday. And Putin took that as a, a black eye. And of course he was going to lash out. Therefore, we're somewhat complicit. Yeah. I mean, that argument fundamentally reverses cause and effect. Uh, it's not the case that um, Putin became or Russia became a revisionist power seeking to take back control over Eastern Europe because NATO expanded. Rather, those countries were hammering on NATO's doors saying, please take us in, because they knew that Russia would try to take back control of the region once it was able to. Um, the roots of Russian revisionism really date back to the fact that in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia never made the transition from being an empire to being a nation state. And that, that is something um, that is not the case with the US. And I think that's where the analogy with the Monroe Doctrine breaks down, at least now. You know, we're not talking about the 19th century. At least now... Um, you know the U.S.'s desire to hold sway over, you know, in, in over the international relations of the Western Hemisphere, is not um, in contradiction with Mexico being a sovereign nation state or Brazil or Argentina. Perhaps you could say it was in the past. Perhaps it was in Chile in 1973. You know, but it, but it is not now. Whereas um, Russia, the Russian national security elite that uh, and the secret service elite that came back into power with Putin never accepted the Soviet defeat at the end of the Cold War. Um, they accepted the failure of Marxism-Leninism, and they accepted that um, capitalism is, is really um, a more potent system for underpinning national power, but they never gave up the geopolitical ambition to be one of the very biggest powers in the world. And in their mind, um, regaining Russia's lost status uh, requires taking back control over 
what they long called the near abroad, the former Soviet space, as well as rebuilding the old Soviet sphere of influence deep into Central and Eastern Europe in a way that is incompatible with those countries' sovereignty as nation states. And, and that is a profound difference with um, America's role in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. That is a neo-imperial project. And, and here, you know, writers like Mearsheimer are primarily interested in the U.S. They're primarily making arguments aimed at restraining U.S. foreign policy, which they think has been too adventurous, for example, in uh, invading Iraq. They show a lack of interest in Russia, so their um, understanding of what drives Russian foreign policy has been widely criticized as, as superficial and, and inadequate by people who are more expert about Russia. And, I mean, quite apart from their ineptitude or lack of expertise on Russian thinking, even if they were right on Russia, they display a complete, completely callous disregard for the overt interests of hundreds of millions of people in Central and Eastern Europe. Yes. So it's a hierarchical view of the world that says there are great powers who are actors, who are subjects, and then there are smaller countries who are objects, and they just have to put up with being under the thumb of, of the bigger powers. And it, it reminds me of the line in uh, Thucydides where the, um, the Athenians tell the poor little island of Milos, um, the strong do as they will, and the weak suffer what they must. Um, but this is not the world order that you know we we accept anymore. Um, but, I mean, it also deprives <laughs> deprives people in smaller countries of agency, which, as a member of uh, you know, as a citizen of a medium sized country, is offensive. It's it's as if you know Ukraine. Like the, a friend of mine was was watching the Chinese coverage of the Ukrainian war, uh, the Chinese uh, you know propaganda coverage, I suppose, and was saying that the coverage was all about how the Americans had hoodwinked these foolish Ukrainians into thinking that it was in their interest to uh, be at war with Russia. Uh, so this is a, a proxy war. So the, you're basically erasing the humanity of Ukrainians in your patronizing <laughs> you know, worldview where only Americans and Russians are reasonable grown-ups and Ukrainians are just following what they have to follow. Yeah. Well, they are seen, you know, second-tier countries and smaller countries are simply not seen as agents in the same sense as great powers in, in this way of looking at the world. And But, but in the post-1945 world order, that, that is immoral and also um, actually not realistic as a description of how the world works because there is no sovereign nation-state in the world that believes, yeah, we're not really an actor, we just have to do what the big boys tell us what to do. Um, also, no, Ukraine is a medium-sized country with a population of around 40 million people. It's not you know, some tiny little statelet. Mm. And as it has shown, it is able to, you know, to find back vigorously. Um, well, I mean, people would say it wouldn't have been able to if it wasn't for the massive influx of money and yeah. arms from the West. So in that yeah. respect, it's a puppet. Yeah, well, that is true. But you know, th that is also a feature of the world as it works in, in, in actual fact, which is that great powers will also a, come to the aid of small countries that are being attacked by other great powers. And you know, any realist who also wants to describe the way the world is must surely recognize that this has always been the case. Should we have pushed back when Putin took Crimea? Yes, I think. Ten years ago or whatever. That is the prime um, piece of evidence for the argument that a weak response is escalatory. So um, the West really needed to, to um, really lay down a marker there. Um, what could we have done, just given lots of arms to Ukraine to take it back? I mean, one thing is military aid, um, which to Ukraine, so that Ukraine, so that uh, would be able to defend itself against even bigger incursions. But um, the signal that Western economic policies sent was 
uh, fatal and a massive own goal. There were very limited sanctions in 2014 when Putin took Crimea. And very soon afterwards, um, Germany rewarded Russia with uh, the second Nord Stream gas pipeline, which is this big gas pipeline that went from Russia through the Baltic Sea to Germany. And uh, the signal that... Is that the one the Ukrainians blew up in well, the Sea? So th- th- there, is, there is no um, conclusive proof as to who it was. Some unknown uh, terrorists blew up the pipeline in order to prevent Russia from having uh, a card to play yes. to bribe Germany with. So in, in the autumn of 2022, um, three of the four Nord Stream pipelines, because it's, it's two clusters of two, uh, were blown up with charges um, placed deep under the sea. And investigators and intelligence services in the West believe it was very probably the Ukrainians or some kind of uh, an element within the Ukrainian state. Right. But German, so Germany had been hungry for Russian gas. Figures. Chancellor Merkel, uh, whose legacy, I must say, has not survived this war in my mind and many others because she was so accommodationist and really thought that you could do work, you could you could work with Putin and you could uh, someday trust. Well, not someday, you could actually trust Putin. Yeah. Um, and so she basically is, correct me if I'm wrong, the avatar of non-response to the Crimean. Uh, incursion and yeah she, i mean she played a very ambiguous role because on the one hand she was the um the key politician or the key national leader in orchestrating european union economic sanctions against russia had it not been for her doing that then you know the western response to the seizure of crimea would have been even weaker but then very quickly um she rewarded russia with Nord Stream 2 when you say rewarded, I mean, she wouldn't think of it that way. She of course just, not. She would just say, it's a, look, it's a pragmatic economic deal. We don't condone the invasion of Crimea, but, but we've got to get our gas from somewhere. Yeah, but the signal to Russia is Germany, despite what we just did, uh, and despite the fact that the Germans are saying publicly, well, that was, you know, appalling and unacceptable, Germany is now willing to double down on its um, imports of Russian gas, making itself even more dependent on our right. Russian gas. So and yeah, was it feasible? Would we have been able to get the arms into Ukraine sufficient for the Ukrainians to be able to take back Crimea? Taking back twenty fourteen, not anytime soon, because you know the Ukrainian military at that time was a shambles, um, and, and it, it got uh, you know badly defeated by the covert Russian invasion of Donbas. You know, really, what happened is the Russians created these proxy militias and armed them and financed them and led them. And the Ukrainian army was strong enough to push them back. And then the regular Russian army intervenes and the Ukrainian military uh, was, was defeated um, in, in 2014, 15. Um, so at that point, you know, Ukraine was militarily very weak. Um, in subsequent years, the West, especially the US, has steadily offered arms and trading, at least small arms. Um, they didn't send heavy weapons, but Obama, and then interestingly, uh, the Trump administration more so sent military aid and helped the uh, Ukrainians to develop their military. And it turned out to be stronger when the Russians launched their big invasion than anyone had expected and mm. done better than, than expected. Right. So the calculus, uh, I mean, for, to those who fear that if we did a, a big final push of uh, long-range missiles and fighter jets into Ukraine as a kind of a one-time final bet in the hope that they can reclaim southern Ukraine... 
and and end, and end this. To the people who think that that is too risky because it might provoke Russia, one need only look back at 2014 and go, well, yeah, we also thought that was too risky, but the fact that he got away with it meant that he's now come back for more, and if he gets away with it now, what is the limiting principle for Putin? Like, at what point does he stop if we don't yes. say no? Because I think there's a misconception in the West, especially in America, that we've basically been doing everything that we can. Yeah that we've been giving them everything we can. And it's sort of news to me to yeah. learn that actually we've just been... No, it's, it's been, been spending a lot of money, but only on little... No, items. look, it's, it's a significant amount. It's taken a significant amount of arms to enable the Ukrainians to stop Russia from winning. Um, but it's been a balancing act. Um, the West has certainly not done everything it could have. Um, unfortunately, you know, for the, for the Ukrainians and for those who want to see them succeed, uh, we're now in a completely different place, though, because we're, we're now talking about, about the risk that uh, the West will withdraw military aid, that it won't be able to maintain even the balancing act. That it, and I want to talk to you about the... I know you have to go, but stay with me for uh, another bit, because I want to talk to you about the nightmare scenario that the United States does, that things do turn, and whether or not, if Trump wins, everything changes, or even whether or not a Republican-led Congress uh, can change everything, and whether or not NATO could fracture or Trump could even withdraw the United States from NATO and whether that would be in some ways a good thing because maybe the Europeans step up and start defending themselves, uh, what the consequences are. I'm, this will be just be for our premium subscribers. So if you are a regular listener, thank you for listening and thank you, Marcus. Uh, you can uh, you can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash podcast. Um, so what happens if the US turns around and goes... Uh, we've had enough. Thank you very much. We're not going to keep funding this sinkhole. To hear the rest of this conversation, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen, and you will get your own personal premium podcast feed with at least three extra episodes of the podcast every month and heaps of extra stuff, including the remainder right now of the fabulous conversation you've just been hearing. If it was worth listening to this much of, don't rob yourself of the rest. Pull out your phone right now and search for uncomfortable conversations in the substack.